there is a way to make dreams come true. A fundamental part of my whole worldview is that this is a skill that can be learned. It's a skill that can be taught about how to take this little thing that pops in your head and let's see if we can figure out a way to make that become real. Welcome to Teach Me Something New. I'm your host, Britt Morin, and this is a production of iHeartRadio and Brit & Co. All my life, everyone's told me I should focus on being good at one thing. But the truth is, I'm curious about a lot of things. But how do you learn about everything? The answer? Make the world's best experts teach you in less than an hour. So come along with me as we all learn something new. In a world filled with so many ideas, it can seem overwhelming to try and start something new. And even when you share your ideas, there are plenty of people who want to tell you that will never work. So how do we follow our internal compass and find success and the risks that we take? Well, our guest today has cracked the code. Today's guest is Mark Randolph, best known as the co-founder and the first CEO of a little enterprise called Netflix. Mark left Netflix in 2003, and in the time since, he has spent a majority of his time doing what he loves most, serving as a mentor to CEOs of young and growing companies. He's also the author of the book, This Will Never Work, and the host of the podcast of the same name. Join us today as we uncover the secret to finding success in business while also finding emotional fulfillment in the process. Welcome to the show, Mark. Well, thanks, Britt. Pleasure to be with you. So great to be with you. I happen to know of your little enterprise that you started called Netflix. <laughs> I'm sure I think uh, 151 million subscribers to date do. Is that the right number? Uh, yeah, a little bit more than that, but yes, close <laughs> enough. All right. And we're going to dive all into how that started, but I want to actually throw it back to your childhood, which is what we do for a lot of guests that join this show. Uh, and I'm really curious to think about the path of who you were as a child to who you are as a grown man today. Were there any signs that you were destined for entrepreneurship? <laughs> yeah, certainly. Uh, I laugh because uh, destined for entrepreneurship is probably too strong of a word because of course, at the time, who's even thinking about such a thing as entrepreneurship? But looking back, Backwards, it's certainly obvious that I was always drawn to the types of things that entrepreneurs do all the time, which is basically solve problems, kind of basically seeing the world as imperfect. And instead of just complaining, saying, wow, I wonder if I could do that. I wonder if we could try this. I wonder if I could fix that. I was always starting things. So yes, in many ways, that pattern was established really, really early. What were some of the things you were starting? I'm curious because I had the same thing. I wanted to, I thought I wanted to be an inventor. I didn't know what the word entrepreneur was, but I was just finding problems like the fact that I hated my blaring alarm clock next to my bed and then dissolving solutions for them, which when I was nine was the Therm Alarm, a mattress pad that heats up gradually enough to make you throw off the sheets and covers and jump out of bed. But what were some of your problems that you were solving? Yeah, mine wasn't quite as good as that. Mine was like a rotating hairbrush, which I think they actually have now. Yes. Did you have long hair? <laughs> for anyone that can't see Mark right now, he does not have long hair. So I'm this curious. This is the result of experimenting with a rotating hairbrush. No, <laughs> this was when I was like seven. So give me a break okay. here. I did have long hair back then, but 
it, it was more that it wasn't so much. I did have a notebook, a notepad that I would write all my inventions in. And it's kind of funny because my, my father actually was a nuclear engineer uh, and he had a patent on something that he had invented. And I thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And I kind of said to myself, Back then, God, I would love to have a patent. I'd love mm-hmm. to invent something. Mm-hmm. And back at the back then, though, inventing something kind of meant something physical, yep. like some kind of Rube Goldberg-like device that did something. Yeah. Like the thermal alarm, by the way. <laughs> exactly. But I, I was always drawn to that. My start things tendency was driven more toward I'd start magazines. I would start clubs. I would do collective purchasing deals where I got everyone assembled so that I would get free stuff and they would all get discounts. That was the sort of thing that I was drawn to, which were not just necessarily the physical thing created, but it was more building an organization of people to make something happen that hadn't happened before. Mm, so building community around an idea of something that needed to change. In exactly. The world. Got it. I mean, I couldn't build a rotating hairbrush. I just didn't have the skills or any of that stuff. But I could certainly get eight of the neighbor kids together and do some crazy thing because that just required the power of persuasion. Did you ever get them together to like curl their hair or <laughs> like I can imagine the connection there. It's like the element of groupthink, right? We're all going to make this product together. So nowadays, though, you say that everyone has an idea at some point in their lives. And, and you talk often about the element of hard work, which distinguishes the ideas that survive from the ones that never go anywhere. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I'm not sure it's the element of hard work, although it's certainly a piece of it. The thing that separates that is that uh, most people don't do anything with their idea. It stays this dream. It pops in their head. And then two seconds later, also up pops 20 reasons why they can't. Oh, I need, you need to raise money, or I need a co founder, or I need to quit my day job, or I need to drop out of school, or I mean, I've heard them all. And that's the end of that. Or the other bad thing that happens is the idea stays a dream where it's in their head and they keep thinking about all the cool things it will be and imagine how amazing it. And they build this whole castle in their mind, but never take that important first step of colliding the idea with reality. And what mm-hmm. separates the people who are successful entrepreneurs, the people who end up building something really interesting is not that their idea was any better, but it's that they had the idea and then did something about it. They figured out some mm-hmm. clever, creative way to try it, to test it, uh, to make it, to sell it, to do something and take that important first step of figuring out if the idea was any good or not. I'm curious what you would say is the best way to validate your idea, because oftentimes women tell me, I don't have a big enough network. I don't have money to even have a prototype. And so how am I supposed to get support to know if this is a good idea or not? You know, the the, the trick that I've been working on forever and that I teach other people too, I mean, I call it validation hacking, which is it's not about taking your idea and figuring out a way to create your idea. Because you're right, sometimes that takes money or that takes more time or it takes people. And that is, is sometimes rightfully more than most people can muster. So the trick I've found is 
not to create some minimal viable product, but create some minimal unviable product to parse apart your idea and say, fundamentally, there's really just one piece of this that is the question. And let's just test that one little piece of it. And the best way I can do this, I think, is if we have time, is can I give you an example of what I mean? Yes. Yeah. This happened to be a female entrepreneur. She was a university student um, because I do a lot of work with university students and and she had an idea. And the idea was a peer-to-peer clothing sharing. You know, that I have all these clothes in my closet. I don't wear. I've had this idea before, by the way. I love this already. (laughs) Yeah. It's a a good idea. Who knows? Uh, And what she was coming to me for, the same things that people come to you about and they go, oh, you know, where am I going to find someone to help me code this? Or how do I raise the money? Or should I drop out of school to do this? And it's like, whoa, slow down here. Let's take the first step and let's see if we can figure out a way to collide the idea with reality just to find out if in fact it is a good idea or not. And I go, here's what we're going to do. Do you have a piece of paper? She goes, yeah, of course. I'm a college student. So I go, great. Give a Sharpie. He goes, yeah, I have a Sharpie. All right. So write on the piece of paper, want to borrow my clothes? Please knock and tape it to the outside of your dorm room door. Now, because we're going to find out in the next few hours whether this is a good idea or not. If nobody knocks, well, wow, you found something out right there. This idea you thought was so compelling, uh, no one else quite sees it that way. But let's say someone does knock. Fantastic. Now you're going to discover the next phase of your project, which is size, a fit, a style. Now let's say those match and people borrow things. Now you're going to find the next thing out. How do you feel when your favorite blouse comes back torn or dirty or stained? You're going to learn about dry cleaning costs. You're going to learn about repeatability. And if you're successful, you're going to drive yourself crazy doing all of this longhand. You're going to be recording who borrowed what on three by five cards. You're going to be tracking it in a yellow pad. You're going to be texting people to get your clothing back. It is completely non-repeatable, completely non-scalable, but you're going to learn whether the fundamentals of your idea are sound or not. And you're going to do it with a piece of paper and a Sharpie and a piece of tape. Um, And then when it comes time to say, do I need to raise money? Do I find a technical, how do I find a technical co-founder to help me code the site to make this repeatable and scalable? You're not going to do it by waving your hands and saying, imagine if you will, you're going to say, look what I've done. I know now what my customer acquisition cost is. I know what my lifetime value is. I know what my churn is. I know the average repeat rate. I know what the costs are. I'm just trying to scale it. Mm -hmm. And it all comes from backing down and saying, let's just take the one piece, which is, let's start with, does anybody care? And Mm -hmm. test that. And to test that, you don't need an app. You don't need uh, a co-founder. You don't need anything. You just need a little creativity. Yeah. I love that example, not only because I love that idea and I'm curious if she actually tried it and it worked, uh, but because my twist on it would be that you can also test that initial message on the door, right? So it's like, want my clothes, please knock. That might feel like a little obscure. Um, You don't know if the person who has the clothes is a male or female. You don't know what style of clothes. So maybe you add an image of what the closet looks like. Maybe you change the wording. So it's like, want my formal gowns? Please knock. Maybe you're experimenting, which in you know the technology world we call A-B testing, with the language, the images to see if if some of these actually work better than others, and if you get more knocks. That's fantastic. Because I, I encourage people to do the same thing, but using keyword testing. But keyword testing takes a little bit of money. Yours takes no money at all. It's a fantastic right. idea. 
I'll, if we have time, I'll give you one more quick example about somebody. I love it. This person had the idea. He was at a party. It was like late at night. It was in San Francisco. And what happens is everyone, they ran out of beer and they all began arguing whose turn it was to go out in the rain and buy more beer. And of course, you know, light bulb goes off. What if there was an app that knew my tastes and knew my address at my credit card store, knew the open liquor stores, knew who delivered, hit the button and boom, the beer shows up. Same thing. Now that would take money. Uh, you'd have to code an app. You'd have to build the database. But the fundamental question isn't, can I build it? build the database? No. The fundamental question is not, does my phone know where I am? Those aren't fundamental questions. They've been answered. The fundamental question was, does anyone care? So what he did, this is similar to your posting it on the door, is he just printed up those little business cards you can make on a printer that said, need beer, call me. And then he would stand outside apartment buildings on Friday and Saturday night. And when someone in the right demographic came up, he'd hand them the card, say, if you need beer tonight, call me. And then he'd go home and wait with his cell phone. And if he got an order, he'd get on his bike and go to the liquor store and go back. And again, he found out all those things. In this case, it was a bad idea. You know, it didn't work. Everyone was drunk. The orders were small. Uh, there was no repeat business. But by colliding the idea with reality, he did stumble eventually on an idea that did work. But it all started not with raising money, but with just a, a, a laser printer and business card stock. And the willingness to do something in a non-repeatable, non-scalable way to begin discovering if in fact the idea was a good idea or not. You know, the thing that you just said that I think is really poignant is that oftentimes you don't actually find the big idea until you're partway into the little idea um, because either you figure out a business model, breakthrough, pricing, or more, more often, I think your customers start asking you for this thing you didn't even think about offering, you know, in the sense of the beer, maybe, maybe they didn't want beer, they wanted food because they were super hungry because they were drunk. And so it turned into Postmates, you know, or, or um, DoorDash or something like that. And, and what I think um, I see a lot of entrepreneurs do is actually try to think about the like end state of their business. Like, if we are successful, we are going to be this type of business. You have no idea what 10 years on from now is going to look like in this world. You have no idea if your little idea even resonates with customers, much less what they're going to want next from you. And and so I think it's a mistake to think too far forward in that regard. What are your thoughts on that? I think I, I completely agree. It is such a fundamental flaw to be dreaming, to spend all your time dreaming about how cool it will be when, instead of thinking, how do I get to when? And the way you get to when is by starting with something which you know is not going to work. Um, and if, if you don't think it's not going to work, well, let me break it to you. It's not going to work. It's the fundamental nature of discovery is that it's not this idea. And the more time and energy you envision that idea becoming this amazing thing in 15 years, you're deluding yourself. It's, you got to start. And all you got to think about is how to get that first stage going. And then once the discovery happens, then you realize how wrong those original assumptions were. And you have a whole new set of assumptions. And it's repeat, 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 repeat. And if you're lucky and skillful, eventually that does lead to something uh, amazing. But right. only if you're willing to be flexible and recognize that each step is just a, a step. Right. And it's an opportunity for more input. And it's so funny because ironically or not, <laughs> I have a, a class that I teach is the first class of the self-made course. And in it, I talk about how um, 
terrible a lot of initial ideas are. I show the original Britain Co. website, which I kid you not, we had like a chalkboard logo. It like we had this textured background of the website that was trying to feel like linen. Um, It was awful. It was hideous. I can't look at it anymore because I'm so embarrassed by it. But then I also show the red envelope um, to remind people like what Netflix looked like when it started. And not only did it like was it a red envelope, which looked okay, but it wasn't even the same idea that it is. I mean, it's sort of the same idea, but it's not the same format. And and, and the so red I'm envelope curious. wasn't even the original envelope. Wait, what was the original envelope? The purple, purple cardboard uh, monstrosity. But, <laughs> That's how I think about my website too. <laughs> yeah, that red envelope went through probably six or seven hundred iterations to get it to the wow. point that, um, well, the way it, way it is now, they still have red envelopes. But you know, it's it's been evolved tremendously. And it's because you, like you said, you start and you learn and you figure it out. I mean, listen, you know, the original idea for Netflix, people are surprised, of course, that it wasn't streaming. Then in fact, it was mailing DVDs to people. But even for the first year and a half, it wasn't a subscription program. It was all a la carte. Mm. I mean, it was completely different. Uh, It was just this initial premise that there might be an interesting way to do video rental other than walking into a blockbuster. And we were very comfortable trying one thing after another for years until we eventually got to something that actually was a repeatable, scalable model. When was it that it started working for you? Like, what did you think it was always working? Was it successful from the beginning? But, you know, this, the book, as you mentioned, is called That Will Never Work. My podcast is called That Will Never Work. And <laughs> that's because that is what everyone said when I pitched that original idea for Netflix. Um, you know, my investors, that'll never work. Uh, early employees, oh, that'll never work. Even my loving wife, that will never work. And when we launched on April of 1998, so a long time ago, mm-hmm. lo and behold, well, they were right. It didn't work. It was a terrible idea. How did you know it wasn't working? Because uh, two things. One is we had no, we had no idea. We'd put all this effort into it. We built a website. We had every single DVD available at the time. Uh, we had deals, partnerships with the DVD manufacturers to have coupons in their boxes. Uh, and then everyone came rushing to the site and nobody rented from us. And if they did rent from us once, uh, they wouldn't come back. It was just obvious that it was not a I mean, listen, you know, everyone's looking for that thing called product market fit. It's really hard to describe, but you know it when you see it. And <laughs> thus it is with product market fit. And we did, we distinctly did not have it, but that's okay. Remember, I think every idea sucks. And so I recognize this one's another one that sucks, but by having people coming to the site and not ordering, you learn almost as much as you do if they order from you and you evolve and you change. And we took us a year and a half. I mean, a year and a half of it not working and trying hundreds, if not thousands of different things before we finally threw together these completely non-intuitive ingredients, which was this all-you-can-eat model. There's no due dates, no late fees and subscription. And then miraculously, uh, that worked. But that took a year and a half. And so that was the point, a year and a half in, where we finally went, wow, this is actually finally... Um, a good idea. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What I think a lot of people don't realize too is even when you you sort of pivot into like, oh my gosh, this is working territory, it's still challenging. You're still like, I'm sure you probably were trying to figure out supply and demand curves of like which DVDs to hold in stock and like how many people are going to rent what at any time and like, you know, the packaging getting disrupted in the mail, which is why you had 700 versions of it. Um, so can you talk a little bit about like what what else do you have to look forward to even after your idea works? in theory, uh, but the business might still be complicated. Uh, you know, it's funny. That's an interesting question because it doesn't become more fun or less fun. Uh, it's a little bit different, but even not that different because what, what you're doing is coming in and solving the latest problem every day. And it's not like magically all of a sudden like in the Wizard of Oz, the world changes from black and white to color. You still have as many things broken as before. You still have as many things crying out to be fixed as you did before and as few resources as you did before. What you've gotten is permission to keep going. You've gotten bonus levels, like in a video game. You get this ability to keep coming to work and getting to do this really fun thing of solving problems. But in some ways, uh, they get harder. It's like climbing a mountain and you see this little peak in front of you and you're scratching and scratch, climbing up and almost falling and you finally collapse exhausted in the top and you go, oh my God, I made it. And you look up and nope, there's okay. another even bigger one in front of you. Oh, and then you so crawl, crawl to the top of that, there's an even bigger one. It never, ever stops. So uh, yes, once we had solved the no due dates, no late fees problem, we certainly had problems. And in fact, in this specific case, because we had done subscriptions, subscriptions are an amazing business model for a whole bunch of reasons. But one of the most powerful things is because you have a lifetime value to your customer. Because once you subscribe, they usually stick around. You can now spend more money to acquire them than you might make on them on that first order. So they're usually very heavily cash flow negative in that first month. Some cases, the first six months. My most recent startup of Looker, uh, 14 or 15 months. And so when you all of a sudden are successful, well, customers are flooding in and money is cash is flying out. Mm -hmm. So now all of a sudden the struggle changes from how do I find this repeatable scalable model to how do I fund this repeatable scalable model, mm -hmm. which gets especially tricky when you, this is the summer of 2000, when you have the dot com crash and mm. you can't get funded. So in other words, I'm just saying that it's not always working on marketing or sales. A lot of times you have these existential problems of success, which right. is how do we, uh, how do we fund it? Well, and I don't think many people realize that a lot of the biggest companies in the world today <laughs> are not profitable. You know, like, I mean, you know, Uber and Amazon, like, there's like all these companies are losing so much money every year because the stock market or their private investors are banking on the fact that if they continue to grow, they can continue to flip the switches that will make them profitable someday. And, and I, what, and again, it becomes the CEO or the founder's job to just think about 
raising that money, like having a bank account that can pay people at all times, no matter if you're doing a billion dollars in revenue or a million dollars in revenue. And I think, you know, human resources and finance and fundraising become like two of your biggest jobs, right? Um, Whereas I do think to your point, a lot of people agree that like sales and marketing, let's just keep growing our customer base is is number one, which is important for sure. Um, But ultimately- Rule number one, rule number one for a CEO, don't run out of money. (laughs) Totally. That's your big, maybe vision is up there, but as they uh, say in the nonprofit world, no margin, no mission. If you can't afford it, who cares how visionary you are? How close did you guys get in the dot-com days with Netflix to running out of money? Extremely close. We were, in fact, we were so uh, close to going out of business, we decided we had to sell the company uh, and pitched ourselves to Blockbuster to buy us, hoping that they would be able to save us. Uh, We had a a model which worked. We had a successful company, but we were at a point where there was just no way to fund this. Uh, and it was going to be no investors end. to put money in. No one's going to put was putting money to dot coms back then. It yeah. was just uh, that was like having the scarlet letter. Yeah. Right. So how did you save it? We tried to get a meeting with Blockbuster. It took us about three months to finally convince them to even have a meeting. Wow. Uh, and they finally said yes. And we flew to Dallas, and we all got. They we all ended up in this cavernous conference room on the twenty seventh floor of this big glass and steel skyscraper. And we pitched that we would combine forces and that they would run the stores. We would run the online business. We would develop a blended model, which we knew from research would be the most compelling thing. And everyone lives happily ever after. And it was great. They were like nodding and asking good questions, leaning in. Uh, And then they asked the big question, which is how much? And we said, well, we were at that point about $50 million in the hole. So we said $50 million, figuring at least that would pay back all of our investors. Uh, And basically they laughed at us at the hubris that this little company pretty much bankrupt would ask $50 million for what they felt they could have built in a couple of days. Mm. And that was tough because flying home from Dallas, it was crushing because not only was the company we thought was going to save us, not going to save us, they were now going to compete with us. And because it had taken three months to even get the meeting, we had explored every other possible option. We knew, knew that there was no easy way out. There was no trick. There was no gimmick that, as my dad used to sometimes say to me, you know, Mark, sometimes the only way out is through Mm -hmm. that. If we were going to survive, we had to do this on our own. And so we went back, basically got out of almost everything that wasn't core. We laid off 40% of the company, completely hunkered down and said, we have to get to cash flow positive on the money we have in the bank. And we're going to have to do it on our own. We can't count on anyone else to, uh, to save us. And you did. We did. Got, eventually, it took about almost two years, but managed to get our way to uh, when the window began to open up for public offerings again and managed to do an IPO, which uh, raised the cash, which basically wow. not only kept us alive, but allowed us to then um, begin growing again. Wow. I, I actually um, really can empathize with you because running a digital media business of a different kind over the last 10 years 
you know, the the winds of, you know, online advertising and the duopoly of Facebook and Google and just like all the different ways that that model that had once been amazing started to shake out over the last few years was a big blow to not just Britain Co., but every company in the digital media space, BuzzFeed and HuffPost and everything else, you know, most most of these companies have either been sold or consolidated. And and for us, it, it was like, as you were talking, I was having literal flashbacks <laughs> because, oh, I was like, can we go like have a drink after this, Mark? Uh, <laughs> because it was like the same thing. I talk about it in self-made because ultimately this has a positive ending, but like, yeah, I mean, we were, it was like, okay. It was deemed okay in, in venture capital to be losing money um, if you are growing. And we are growing 2X, 3X year over year, every year, you know, for six, seven years. And then, you know, we stopped and it was like, oh God, what are we supposed to do? And then no one was funding digital media companies anymore because the advertising industry was broken. It was just like, we thought about selling it, the prices were terrible, or we found no buyers. And it was just, it was like, oh God. And that day came when I had to make that call to do the layoff and to get profitable. And it was like the weirdest moment, I think for me as a CEO and an entrepreneur to be like so beat up inside emotionally, you know, cause like this is your baby. This is the thing that you care so much about. Um, but have to put on a face, like it's gonna be okay. We're gonna make it through. And at the same time, you have to lay off these people whose families and lives you know you're impacting. It was brutal. It was painful. And like, I think there are times where you want to quit. I, I love the James Dyson quote, which is like, the people that don't quit are often the ones that find success. I, I'm butchering this. You probably know this quote better than I do, which is like, because most people do quit. Like you, when you get to the point where most people quit, but you keep going, that's why you'll be successful. So like, what is your advice to people who get to that point, who are like, I think, I think it's time to quit. And how do you know if it's the right time to quit? It seems one of the most frequent questions people ask is, when you know that it's time to stop? And I think it's an abstract question that you really never consider. You're just wired not to stop. You're wired to irrationally keep going until someone forces you to stop until you can't raise money. It, you just don't decide to stop. It's a weird, weird thing. There's mm -hmm. something different which happens, which sometimes you find a way out, which is an ending. You recognize we can't make it on our own. We have to sell the company, but that's not stopping. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a strange thing. So I guess the answer is I haven't the slightest idea. And when I do figure out when to stop, um, I'll, I'll tell you, but it's, it's just a compulsion to realize there still has to be some way to solve this problem. And I think it comes from having so much experience being willing to try things you don't know whether they're going to work or not. Mm -hmm. If this is the first time you have to do something, you're not sure whether it's going to work or not, then it's very easy to go. I don't want to do this, but if your whole career, in my case, has been basically every day coming in and doing something that I don't know in advance whether it's going to work or not, that why would I at some point not want to keep trying things that might possibly save the company? And here's the other thing, Britain, I'm sure you probably feel the same way too, is that when I look back on the times at Netflix or at any of my other companies that I remember the most vividly, 
that I remember in some ways the most fondly, that I remember as being the most exciting time to be an entrepreneur, it was almost always the times when mm -hmm. things were the most desperate. Mm -hmm. That's for some reason what really brings you and your team together. And the other great thing is that when you go through those cathartic moments of almost going out of business, when you have to lay people off, when you have to get out of your leases, when you get this opportunity to be forced to restructure everything, what you end up with is usually something great. You know, at Netflix, getting out of all the weird crap that we had started to accumulate, getting rid of a lot of structure and people that were bloating the company. Yeah. You're left with the people who all of whom are incredibly high functioning, comfortable with ambiguity, love coming to work, solving problems. You've lost all ability to do any kind of command and control. It's all back to the way it felt in those first days where all you can do is go, all right, I need you to do this. I'll check in with you in three weeks. Totally. <laughs> That's just the best. And when you can get that back after having almost lost it, you go, that was, that was worth it. You're so right. I can now say this uh, as I'm coming out of some PTSD because <laughs> was, yours was like 20 years ago, Mark. Mine was like two, um, two and a half. So, so the, the people in the trenches with you, like it's literally like a war analogy. You're just like, you're my brother, you're my sister. Like we are here defending one another. We're down in this trench. We're sort of like figuring out what our next strategic move is. And, but we got, I've got you and you've got me. And there's this real like camaraderie that you build up, which is to me, like to your point, like why it's irrational to be an entrepreneur and irrational to join a startup. However, it is the probably like most human experience you can have in business because you are so closely tied to these people emotionally because you're all putting it on the line. This is your life. This is your reputation. And you're doing this thing together out of ambiguity, but out of like mission and changing the world and like all of these things that you share values with. And, and it's, it's just so beautiful. And I think it's why I'm addicted to it. Not only now running multiple companies, but like I have a venture fund, I'm investing in like all of these new seed stage, like first check in their company companies and trying to like spread the gospel of like why this is so like valuable for your life, despite the fact that it's the most irrational, crazy thing you will ever do. And your emotions will be on 10 and one all day, every day, back and forth. And it's like whack-a-mole, putting fires out all day when you're just hitting the alligator on the head. And it's and, and some people are not made for this and others are. Um, and I wonder if you believe the same thing. Do you believe that there are some people who are probably better entrepreneurs than, than others or that they're destined to be entrepreneurs and others that are, are more sort of like made for corporate life? Or can you learn to do both? Oh, no. I think probably one of my most profound beliefs is that anybody can do this who really wants to do it, that these are not superhuman skills most people I work with are smarter than me, harder working than me, uh, better prepared, certainly better prepared uh, than me. I really do believe that anybody can do this. Whether you want to do it or not is, is different. And a lot of people don't want that. A lot of people want more security. And I certainly, I, I respect that. 
you know, that there are lots and lots of careers where I work a couple of years here and then I move here and I, I can see my future mapped out. I like knowing that next Wednesday, two weeks from now, I actually can leave the office at six because I mean, there, there is something to that too. It's certainly not for me. So my message isn't everyone should be an entrepreneur. Everyone shouldn't be an entrepreneur. But my message is that if it feels like something that's compelling or interesting, there's no reason why you can't. And there's no reason why you shouldn't be. And there are, that you, as we started off our discussion, there's no reason you can't. You don't need money. You don't need to be able to be an engineer. You don't need a co-founder. You don't need to drop out of school or quit your job. If you want to do it, just do it. And you and I, Britt, can help people figure out how to do that. And those are tricks and tips that can be, can be taught. I mean, not, not to segue, but that is why I wrote the book is all the stuff that I learned in my 40 years as an entrepreneur are broadly applicable. There's stuff you can say, it's a mindset and little techniques that you can use no matter what you want to do. The podcast is not, I don't interview successful founders. The podcast is me mentoring early stage entrepreneurs, helping them do the very thing that you and I are talking about now, which is get over the next step or how do I start or how do I transcend or how do I scale myself? And literally letting someone listen in as I coach them through it. I fundamental part of my whole worldview is that this is a skill that can be learned. It's a skill that can be taught. It's a skill that if someone wants to be an entrepreneur for the right reasons, no reason you can't. I would agree with you. And I would add, I, I feel like I'm getting to this habit, Mark, of me adding on to the things you're saying, <laughs> my twist to your peer-to-peer clothing rental and everything else. I would add, you can be any age because I hear this all the time. I'm too old to be an entrepreneur or I'm too young to be an entrepreneur. And you know what? I've seen people as young as eight and as I don't know. I think they think, well, no, I think for women, to be clear, I think for women think they can't be an entrepreneur after they have kids. Uh, and so like their 20s is kind of like, you know, for the most part, the time period. Um, and then I think people that are like in their 50s and on or even like 45 and up are too old. You know, they're not with They don't know all the things They maybe they've had a different corporate career and they've never been an entrepreneur. And again, I've seen an eight year old start a company and I've seen like a 70 year old start a company and and there are so many different types of companies. There are companies that aren't full-time jobs. They might be side hustles. You know, there are the full-time things. There are companies that are venture scale. There are others that are just small, profitable businesses. Like, pick your flavor, but it's possible at any age. And, and anyone can learn it. And I think your point is so true. The only way to actually learn it, though, is, is yes, to listen to your podcast and buy your book. But... And enroll in, enroll in try self-made, try selfmade.com, but to, to actually do it. And to be honest, like, that's the whole point. Like you, it's like, you can go get your MBA and maybe learn things about business, but to get like a, an entrepreneurship degree, you need to put the sign on your door that ask people to knock if they're interested. You need to actually start. Totally There's no other way. That it's, it, it's, it's the same as if someone says that uh, I'm going to become fluent in the language purely by listening to tapes and learning vocabulary. No, you got to get out and actually walk into a coffee shop and open your mouth and sound like you're five years old again. And, right. Or I want to be a great golfer. I'm going to learn how to be a golfer by, by watching YouTube. No, you got to go out and hit balls. If you want to be an entrepreneur, 
Fine, just start. I mean, and so listen, I, I'm a believer. You can do it at any age, but I there's no better time than now. I'll go out on a limb here. It's easier when you're younger. Uh, it's especially easier when you're living in your parents' house and they're <laughs> paying the rent and they're feeding you. It's a little bit easier when you're still in college and uh, maybe you're in a dorm and you have a meal plan and you have all this time. It's even easier when you're working, but you don't, you're not married and you don't have car payments and a mortgage. It, it just gets harder. Doesn't mean you can't do it at any age, but if you're waiting, that's the, that's the bad part. If you're waiting for something to fall into place, right. it never gets easier. So now. Right. Yes. Now, now, now. Start, start, start. And so I want to ask you this too, because you were running what is now one of the most successful companies of all time. You started it, you founded it, but now your mission in life seems to be to give back and to mentor and to convince people to do what we just said, to start. So what was it about your personal calling that changed from wanting to help everyone in the world watch streaming videos and DVDs to wanting people to follow their passion and start companies? Uh, that's a great question. And I'll give you there's two different answers because it's a successive prog progression. The first part is it was selfish. I finished with Netflix when I was uh, 45. So young, young. Uh, <laughs> and I realized at that point, I didn't think I had it in me to start another company to do the seven day a week on call at all hours thing. My kids were a certain age, but you can no more walk away from being an entrepreneur than you could walk away from breathing. I mean, maybe you could three minutes, maybe four minutes, then you can't help it. You got to take a big breath again. Um, but I'm a, I'm a clever lad. And I go, there's got to be some way for me to have my cake and eat it too. And it took me a couple of years to figure out what the model was. And it was mentoring. It wasn't advisory work because that's just mm -hmm. very superficial and very unsatisfying, I think, both for me and the entrepreneur. But mentoring, which is different, where you really invest you're willing to spend enough time to know the person, to know their co-founders, know their team, know the product and the market and the competition, because what you're trying to do is be an entrepreneur again. And when there's a question comes up, not give them a superficial pattern recognition help, but to really understand the problem enough that you can be the only person in the founder's life they can be totally transparent with because you have no ax to grind other than wanting to help. So that was my motivation at the beginning was really, it was my methadone to try and wean myself off my startup addiction was a way to get that feeling of coming to work and sitting around the table with the really smart people solving cool puzzles, but be able to go home at night. But something else happened. And this is a longer story. Richard Branson invited me to spend a week on his private Island with him. <laughs> I feel like that's how every story about Richard Branson starts, but keep going. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course I said, no. And then um, my wife said, you did what? And then we went up, what, what sunscreen? Uh, but <laughs> it was more than that. It, it was, he, he, he has a nonprofit uh, and the model for one of his nonprofit fundraising methods is he, they partner with another nonprofit. Uh, Richard offers up one of his houses uh, they charge people a ton of money to come and do a small intimate conference for four or five days, and then everyone wins. The conference that was being run that I was invited to speak at was for a bunch of very, very wealthy um, Australian businesswomen who had achieved tremendous success in life and were now wondering 
what next? What do I do with my platform, my success, my options? Um, and I was going to go talk about how you turn ideas into reality. And I thought about going there, going, ah, oh, big deal. I'm going to go, I'll do my thing. And then my wife and I'll go hang out on the beach for four days. Win-win. Um, so I go, I do my pitch. And I figure I'll stick around and see what this finding your purpose thing is all about. And I was completely sucked in because they were talking to me. Hmm. Uh, at the time, I was doing a lot of keynote speaking and I would get 5,000 people, 10,000 people to show up to hear me talk for an hour. And I'm going, but what am I using that for? It made me think, what am I doing? And it completely changed my life at that point. It was like came back and said, this is more than just my selfish need to get the startup experience that there really is this tremendous number of people out there who have an idea, um, who have something they want to make real. And if I have some small toolkit that I can use to help them be enabled, to give them that ability to start or to take this side hustle and make it a real business or take a real business to the next level, then that's my purpose. Mm -hmm. I, I, I echo you so much. That's an interesting distinction too, which I think is so important that it's not like this stuff we're talking about is designed to start an Uber or a Facebook or an Airbnb. Who cares what the dream is? It's how do you make that idea real? Like I said, I want to try something new for dinner. I want to change. I want to see if I can get an apartment in the city. I, I want to yeah. change jobs. I, all of those are ideas. And if they're stuck in your head, they end up being ideas. And I think that you and I have some of the tricks that allow you to unlock that stuff. And actually, this is going to sound really corny, but you, there is a way to make dreams come true. And yeah. It, it's not rocket science. It's not fantasy. There no. are things that entrepreneurs have learned about how to take this little thing that pops in your head and let's see if we can figure out a way to make that become real. And and make it real. And the more you do it, the more repetition you get in, the less scary it is, right? And so, and that's what I've learned. And I think the cool thing for me is that even though um, my purpose has now manifested into all these different versions of businesses and things, like yours can too. And we all have one inside of us. And and so it's really about finding that foundation, right? Before you branch off into like your big business idea and your Netflix and your whatever, because at the end of the day, part of what you're working on and the meaning of work, I think, is fulfillment of your life and your purpose here on this planet. And uh, I think far too many of us are not doing that work for our own personal fulfillment. We're doing it for a paycheck or for status or ego. And and so a lot of my my work is to realign everyone back to what those Australian women taught you that day on Richard Branson's Island is finding your purpose, then finding your idea and figuring out how to make it into a business. Um, so with that, I actually want to end this with a quick lightning round if you're cool with it. Okay, whatever comes first. Here you go. What are you reading right now? Oh, I'm reading The Body by Bill Bryson. The Body by Bill Bryson. What are you watching right now? I am watching, oh God, it's really kind of a corny one. We, we, I, I, we just watched uh, Coda last night. Have you seen that yet? No, Coda with a K? No, C-O-D-A. Okay. It's, it's on Apple Plus. Uh, okay, free. not on if Netflix. You're, you're okay, Apple good to know. It's a fantastic <laughs> movie, very sweet, uh, touching. But we're also watching, here's the geeky one, we're watching a movie, uh, we're watching Borgen, uh, B-O-U-R-G-E-N, which is a Danish show. It's kind of like a West Wing about Danish politics. Uh, I love that. <laughs> cool. Okay. Thank you. Um, who is your biggest role model in business? 
probably Richard Branson. And because, not because necessarily the business success, but because he has the same three-legged balance stool that I do, which is entrepreneurship, and he's crushed it. Family, still married to the same woman, has a very close relationship with his family and his grandkids. You can see that when you talk to him and uh, even you know see his social stuff. And then three, uh, adventure hound. You know, mm-hmm. that's a big part of who he is. And that is for me too. So he's just been living proof to me that you really can, you can succeed in all three, that you do not need to pick two or God forbid, pick one. I love that. And now I'm, I, he's becoming my new business idol as you say that. Cause I'm like, yes, you, I like see him with like monkeys on him. He's like traveling in South Africa, but he's also running eight businesses and like with, he's with his wife. And I'm just like, what are you doing? This is amazing. Um, okay. And lastly, what is your favorite mantra that helps you out of a hard time? One more lap and then I'll stop. <laughs> That's amazing. But of course you say it every lap. Right. Yeah, exactly. Which is back to the irrational part of being an entrepreneur. <laughs> so I love it. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can we find you, learn more about you, and most importantly, get access to your book and your podcast? You know, so most of my most of my thinking comes out came out in the book uh, called That Will Never Work, The Birth of Netflix and the Amazing Life of an Idea. Uh, on an ongoing basis, the weekly podcast also called That Will Never Work. But if you don't have the attention span, for a uh, 300 page book or even a half hour podcast, you can get it sliced and diced into 250 some odd character tweets, or you can get pretty pictures on Instagram, or you can even watch me dancing on uh, TikTok. TikTok? Oh. Uh, no, not really dancing, but I'm on TikTok. Oh, okay. but, uh, all things, all things, Mark Randolph is at markrandolph.com. Uh, there you'll find links to everything. Love it. Cool. Well, this was so fun. It was so natural, so easy and very like-minded people. So thank you. I really appreciate your time. For everyone out there, thank you so much for joining our show today. If you enjoyed it, please leave a virtual high five by rating and reviewing it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. See you next week. Thanks for listening to Teach Me Something New, a production of iHeartRadio and Brit Co. I'm your host, Britt Morin. Find more information about each episode at Brit.co slash listen. You can also find me on social media. I'm at Brit or follow us at Brit and Co. Teach Me Something New is executive produced by Allie Ives and Allie Perry with additional production and sound design by Mark Lemmerjazy and Aaron Peterson.